Well, I, uh, I watched the video. I hadn't seen that video before, and I thought, I almost don't even need to preach after that. The, the level of communication without even saying a word was very strong, and I was glad that we saw that because it really ties into our study of the morning. We're going to be back in Luke chapter 2, so if you take your Bible and turn to Luke 2. Last week, we studied about the leading of the Lord and some of the characteristics of God's leading that give us confidence even when the situation is challenging or difficult as it certainly had to be for Joseph and Mary. Physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, everything about their following of the Lord's leading was challenging and difficult. And we saw last week the need to constantly and continuously be um, confident in the Lord's provision, knowing, of course, that He is faithful, that He'll supply all that we need according to His riches and glory. And as believers, especially mature believers, which many of you are, we've learned over the years, haven't we, that all things do work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. But we've also learned, I think, I know I've learned, that even though um, we will be ultimately blessed in the long run more than we can ever imagine. Following the leading of the Lord doesn't necessarily mean that in the short term, it's going to be to our personal advantage. I think that's one thing that the materialism and the, the, um, the selfishness of our culture tells us is that if we follow the will of the Lord, that logically it should be to our advantage. And it doesn't always work that way. I, I can't imagine that at any point during those first few weeks that Joseph and Mary were thinking about, well, what's the benefit to us? How does this work out for us? Because we're having this baby in, in a little cave and, and these men are coming up. I thought it was very uh, interesting to notice kind of the, the reaction as the shepherds walk up and kind of the, who are these guys kind of hesitation. I thought that was very well communicated. But um, uh, as they go through this process, the wise men visit days later and then they head out to Egypt and they're on the run, as we talked about last week. Are they ever thinking at any point, well, how does this benefit me? And what's the advantage to me in all this? They couldn't have been thinking that. Because the Bible makes it very clear that they were humble servants, that they were servants of the Lord and sacrificing their will in the course of their lives wasn't even a question. That's why as you look through the text, and I look through all four Gospels, there's never a suggestion, there's never even a hint from the Holy Spirit as he inspires the men to write these words that there was any doubt or hesitation or angst or anger or resentment or bitterness or, or any kind of uh, on Mary and Joseph. You know, uh, right? You've, you've had uh, in your life for the Lord's, you know, uh, I don't know about that. There's never any of that. In fact, the only question that's asked is by Mary when she says, how can this be? that I'd be pregnant because I'm a virgin. That's not a rebellious question. That's a curious question. How, how could this take place? So the sacrifice of their will and the, and the push forward in terms of their obedience to leading the Lord is unquestioned. And what we never see in them is the one question that we usually ask when the Lord is leading. And that question is, how do I really know this is of the Lord? Sometimes we ask that as the Lord pushes forward. How do we know this is really God leading? In fact, sometimes as we pray, we ask the Lord, 
Lord, if you could just give me a sign. How many have ever prayed, Lord, give me a sign? Come on, let's be honest. Well, pretty much all of you. Now, that usually signals one of two things. The first thing is worse than the second thing. Usually, it signals either first an indication that our faith is not confident and not established and that we need further proof until we're going to be willing to believe in the Lord's leading. Now, in its extreme... That desire for confirmation is what Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 11 when he said, this wicked generation seeks a sign. And what he was talking about there is that the the unbelief of the Jewish people and especially of their religious leaders was so defiant at that point that they kept saying, well, we want extra confirmation and give us more proof and do another miracle and heal another person and teach us more. Almost, almost mocking him because they weren't going to believe no matter what he did. Jesus did miracle after miracle, taught things, raised people from the dead, and they still defied him and still rebelled against him and still put him to death. So it was almost a, a taunt to him, show us more. That's why he says in the middle of his ministry, you're wicked. You're a generation that keeps asking for a sign. Now that's the, that's the worst extreme, okay? The second response of asking the Lord, Lord, give me a sign, is more of a desire for affirmation. Lord, I want to make sure, because the devil's tricky, and he's an angel of light, and he poses as someone that has my best intentions in mind, and he misquotes scripture, and he's got all kinds of plans to destroy me. Lord, I want to make sure this is really of you. So Lord, will you give me some confirmation? Will you give me some affirmation that it's not the devil trying to trick me, but that it's really you. Usually we ask that during a time of testing and change, a time when we're seeking, Lord, what do you want for my life? I want to make sure I'm following your direction. And yet as we mature as believers, we need to say that less and less because how many know as we mature believers, we should be able to discern when the Holy Spirit's speaking. We should be sensitive enough to know this is of the Lord. So as you get 30, 40 years down the pike as a believer, you shouldn't be still saying, Lord, give me a sign. Show me, show me this is really as you, of you. We need to be able to read the word. We need to be able to ask the Lord. And we need to listen to the Holy Spirit. And we need to know this is of the Lord. So as you mature, make sure that you're still seeking the Lord. Now that being said, long introduction to get to Luke chapter 2. You're there, right? Okay. As we come to the Christmas account, I am very impressed, and I think you will be too, by the confident reaction of the shepherds to the news. In fact, I believe that the shepherds of all the people in the Christmas account are the most underrated and unstudied and underappreciated people in the story. Now, certainly, if we were standing here today and all of a sudden an angel appeared, and started praising God and saying there was a huge announcement and we need to go to this place and and check it out. And and then a multitude of angels came and praised God. We probably wouldn't keep sitting here saying, well, what now? We would get up and we would go to the place they told us. So there was certainly a compelling reason for them to go. But, But think about how this felt. Tried to picture them this week, and, and I've studied this so many times, and you have too, but I tried to really infuse myself into that setting and think about what that was like. You're sitting there, it's kind of a quiet evening, the sheep are roaming around, there's nothing really going on, there's no electricity, so it's not like you're 
you know, you're looking at a wired up town. It's not like anybody's on their laptop, you know, checking the internet, Googling this and that, and what's MSNBC got tonight, what's happening over in Bethany. There's none of that. They're just sitting there on the hillside watching the sheep. And all of a sudden, there's a blinding light. And there's an appearance of an angel that is beyond anything that they've ever seen before. And, and how did they react to that? The text, if you look at it, says that they were frightened. They were terribly, terribly fearful. We, we know from the, the King James, which many of us learn, and from Charlie Brown, of course, which is the source of all good, that they were sore afraid, right? Sore afraid? You know sore afraid? Ever been sore afraid? It's not a phrase we use a lot. They were terrified. Think about the human propensity to fear. Think about the human propensity to react when something is unfamiliar and shocking, and all of a sudden it's like, ah! And you go, whoa, 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 wait a second, what is that? And here's an angel now speaking to these shepherds who had certainly never seen an angel before, and he's giving this, this grand news. How would you react to that? On top of the suddenness, on top of the awe, on top of the bright light, on top of now a multitude of angels now praising God, think beyond that even to the magnitude of the message. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Well, Israel had waited for that for years. Randy said earlier, 400 years of silence. And it not, it's not like Israel before that had been actively seeking after God. The nation was divided and split and people were scattered and Nehemiah had struggled to rebuild Jerusalem. I mean, the nation at this point is in turmoil and then there's four centuries of silence. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, here comes an angel and says, a Savior's come. Messiah's here. It's time. Think just about the magnitude of that message. What made them go? And as verse 16 says, what made them go in a hurry? Because they didn't dawdle and say, well, let's think about this, guys. We got the sheep. We got to take care of them. Oh, we're going to do with them. We better round them up and somehow pen them in and figure out a solution. And you know what? It's nighttime. Maybe we'll go tomorrow. Maybe we'll check it out in the morning. It'd probably be easier to find the house in the daytime. We can ask some people what's going on. Have you heard about the king of the Jews being born? Do you know where the Savior is? I heard there's a little baby. You imagine how sometimes we react to news. We overanalyze. They don't do that. They go right away in a hurry. How did they know the message was authentic? How did they know that this baby was really the savior of the world? You never see them question. It just says in the text, let's go straight to Bethlehem. And yet there's no sense from the Holy Spirit that these guys were deeply religious or religious at all. There's no sense that they're sitting around reading the Pentateuch. Hey, did you check out that passage in Exodus? Boy, that's really good. Did you? Did you see that? Oh, yes, I was just studying that earlier, how Moses led the people. They're not doing that. They're just guys. They're just sitting, watching sheep. There's no sense of spiritual expectation or hunger whatsoever. And yet the angel comes, and I want you to see how they react. You there, Luke chapter 2? I'm not there yet. Here we go. Let's start in verse 6. While they were there, the days were completed for Mary to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. 
In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord showed round about them, and they were terribly frightened. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angel had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. Now, when you read that, you're taking notes this morning, there are two phrases that stick out, or at least they stuck out to me this week. One is in verse 12, and one is in verse 15. The first in verse 12 is where the angel says, this will be a sign for you. This is how you'll know. This will be the indication. This will be the flashing red light, so to speak, that will let you know. And then we see the shepherds say, let us see this thing which the Lord has made known to us. Now, there are times in our lives where the Lord leads where it's mysterious and where the full plan is borne out over time and we, by faith, have to be patient and wait and see what the Lord reveals and hear from Him and study His Word and pray and listen to wise counsel until we get to the place where we understand this is what God was leading me to. This is not one of those times. Here, the Lord is abundantly clear He's not hard to understand. He says, I'm revealing this to you, and I'm telling you how you can know when you find the Savior. I'm going to give you specific direction so you can find the baby in the middle of a town crowded with visitors, and I'm going to provide certain details so you can be sure you're right when you find him. But I want you to notice in the text that these details that God gives are not just for identification purposes. There is a much deeper meaning and a much greater, richer significance behind these details that establishes the meaning of the incarnation, Christ coming to earth, and, and provides a picture, a point ahead to the ultimate objective that Christ had for coming. Now that's what we're going to study over the next few minutes. And I want to give you this morning five different signs that God gives here, five pictures that, that show us the eternal message that God is giving to mankind. He's making, at this point, Luke chapter 2, he's making the gospel clear to mankind. He's giving the full revelation of his direct intention to deliver us from sin. He's saying, up front, I want to give you a new life that is released from the bondage of sin, I want to deliver you from what you have been stuck in. I want to free you from the penalty of eternal death. And I want to secure you as my own redeemed child forever. Now what I want to hit you this morning, what I pray the Holy Spirit wants to hit you with is, this is not in any way a picture of a God who is detached. This is not a picture of a God who is disinterested and indifferent and 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 uncommunicative 
and distant or who's being coy or who is playing games and saying, come on, you're in sin. Let me see you grovel and beg a little bit because I'm the God of the universe and you're just a little human who thought you can be your own God and you've sinned against me. So, so come on, let's see it. God's not taunting at this point. He's not sitting in heaven saying, well, you guys are in a mess. You're going to have to figure it out. Sorry. He's not a God coming with a vengeance and saying, I'm just going to destroy all of you because you still don't get it after thousands of years. I already destroyed the earth once and you just continue to rebel. So forget it. I'm done. We're finished. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say distant. Well, figure it out. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how you respond. One thing I hope you will see this Christmas season is that this, this is the unmistakable embodiment of God's love and his mercy and his grace. In three verses, he declares the gospel. In three verses, he makes it abundantly clear, I am reaching out to you. You are a world that is lost and hopeless and have no means of saving yourself. And because I love you and I'm merciful and I care about you, and I want to draw you to myself. I am going to enter creation. I am going to come down and offer you salvation. I'm going to rescue you out of the darkness that you're walking in, and I am going to provide a Savior. I'm going to do that. I don't have to, but I'm going to do that. Now look at how he lays this out in five signs. The first sign is that the gospel is to all. We know that because he comes to the shepherds. This is in verse 8 of your text. He comes to the shepherds. Not the most prominent Jews, not the political leaders, not the kings, not the scribes, not the priests, not the religious leaders, not those who thought highly of themselves or thought too highly of themselves. When the news comes... Verse 8, it comes first to commoners watching dirty sheep. When you think the greatest announcement in the world, can you imagine this announcement in the digital age, in the 24-hour news cycle age, how this would be dissected? There's a reason why God came when he did. The message first goes to shepherds. Why? Why would he go to these people? We certainly know God had valued and used shepherds throughout history to that point. We know with Moses, who was called out of the wilderness to deliver the people out of Egypt. We know with David, who was called out of the wilderness to deliver Israel from the Philistines and from Goliath. God used shepherds to be deliverers. So there's some symbolism, certainly here, in the fact that he goes to shepherds to announce that Jesus would come to be the ultimate deliverer. But I would say more so in this text, the word comes to the shepherds because they represent mankind. The shepherds were the average people. They were the commoners. They were not people that, that you looked up to. They were average people with little expectation. They were awake but dull. Think about the shepherds. Of course, it was their responsibility to make sure the sheep didn't wander off. But this was just another night in the Judean hills. And they're kind of sitting there. You know how it is when you're kind of tired. You kind of, the eyes kind of drift a little bit. You're, yeah, your head bob. You ever do that one? 
And they're awake, but they're not really awake. There's no sense of spiritual expectation at this point. They're not looking for anything in particular. They're certainly not looking for the Lord. In fact, most shepherds in the first century were thought to have kind of a shady reputation. They were people that you kind of looked sideways at a little bit. And, and very often they were known as dishonest. They were thieves. Sometimes they moved their sheep onto other people's land and would steal the produce and kind of co-opt what people have. Sometimes dishonest shepherds would sell the wool kind of on the side and cut out the middleman and, and not go to their boss. Uh, they weren't allowed to appear in court. They weren't allowed to be judges or witnesses in trials. They were from a lower class. They were viewed many times as disreputable. So these are not the power brokers of society. They're not the people that were religiously astute. They aren't anybody really to speak of. They're just people. That's who God brings the message to because that's who needed the message. God didn't go to the ones who were expecting the message. He didn't go to the ones that were looking for the message like Eli and Anna. He went to those who weren't expecting it, but those who needed it the most. It's no coincidence, and there will be no coincidence in what we study this morning, it's no coincidence that God with us comes to the ones who stood as a metaphor for all mankind being unsaved. The Savior was announced to those who were hungry for that news, who may not have even realized it at the time. They didn't know that but they were like their sheep. Do you know many people in the world this morning are like sheep. They're wandering around the religious grass and they're sampling bites of everything and they're never satisfied. They keep eating and they never quite get a bite that they say, oh, that gets it. I've been sick for the last seven weeks. I have not enjoyed a bite of food. You think I would have lost 20 pounds. I haven't, I've gained five. But since I've been sick, I haven't enjoyed, I don't think, a single bite of food that I've had. I've tried, believe me, I've tried everything to try to enjoy it. That's, that's how some people are spiritually in the world this morning. They keep eating and they keep biting. Well, I'll try this religion and this religion and this philosophy and this theory, and, and I'll eat this and this, this. They're like sheep that are just wandering around looking for some kind of good grass, and they never find it. They're never satisfied because they haven't yet met Christ. Christ is the only one who will satisfy because God comes in and he intervenes in history and he rescues and he says, here, I'm come to save you. I've come to seek and save that which is lost. So he goes to the shepherds and he says, here's the good news. The tragedy of our culture is most people don't respond with the same hunger and urgency as the shepherds do because if you look at the text, you see as soon as they hear this, Look at verse 15. As soon as they hear the news, they say, let's get to Bethlehem. There's an urgency and a hunger to find the Savior. I wish more people in the world had that this morning, that urgency and hunger to find the Savior. I wish more believers had the urgency and hunger to know the Savior deeply. Once they see him, oh, I think it was depicted so well in the video. Once they see that baby, they know. 
They know. How do we know they know? Because look at it. As soon as they see it, verse 17, they made known the statement. Oh, you won't believe what happened to us last night. But they don't sit and talk about, oh, the angels were amazing and they were dressed in white and they looked like this and they were all over the sky and they said this. And boy, Charlie and I were talking and we couldn't believe we were actually... They didn't spend time talking about the angels. They spent time talking about the baby. They said, oh, we have seen him. For years, God has been silent because of our rebellion. But what the prophets spoke about now has come true. Last night, we saw him. We saw the baby. He is the Savior. The angels told us, this is the Savior. We saw him. And we want to tell you about him because you need to know him too. Second, look at the next sign. It says in verse 11 that Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. This was the second sign of the validity of the gospel. The shepherds are watching over their flock by night, which was common at that time. I did some research on this this week because everybody was Jesus born on December 25th. Well, less likely than, than possible. Because shepherds would watch their flocks throughout the night between Passover and what is the first rain, which would be about late October, early November to us. So the theory is that this was probably late summer or early fall. Now, if you would, if you've got that satellite photo, guys, of Bethlehem, I want to just show you modern-day Bethlehem because you can see the region. Bethlehem would be right in the center where it's kind of dark. You see that? Everybody see that? Not if you see it. Not if you're not looking. No, I'm just kidding. All right? So Bethlehem would be right in the middle. All around that, you can't see it very well because the resolution uh, is hillside. There's very little commerce. This is a little town of several thousand people. And all around that is the hillside. So there are plenty of places where the shepherds could have been parked in proximity to Bethlehem. There's no indication that they were right outside town. It just says that they were in the same region. And they have to be told, go to Bethlehem. But more than likely, they're in this general area. They're somewhere on the hillsides of that area. And again, that's no coincidence. We studied it last week. Bethlehem was the city of David. It was the place where he was born and anointed as king. And now Jesus comes as the perfect, eternal fulfillment of the Messiah who has promised to come through David, through the line of David. So how does Jesus fulfill this? In three ways. He fulfills it by being born in the city of David. There's a connection there. He's born to parents that are from the line of David. You can trace that in the book of Matthew in chapter 1, where Matthew takes and he goes through all the generations to show how Jesus came as a descendant of David. Then second, he's called the son of David. That was the title only given to the Messiah. And David himself called him Lord. And then third, he establishes an eternal kingdom. God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. And he says, David, your kingdom is going to be forever. It's going to be an eternal kingdom. Now, how could that be when a man dies? How could his reign continue to go on for all eternity when his life ceases at some point. Well, the only way that can happen 
is by Jesus coming out of the line of David to be the son of David to have the eternal kingdom of David. And that's exactly what happens. So the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem is the second sign the gospel is valid. Then we get to number three. Look at this. This is in verse 11 again. The third sign that the Christmas account is authentic, that the gospel's authentic, comes in that one word in verse 11. That's the heart and the essence of the gospel. And that is, unto you is born this day in the city of David. You're going to say it with me. A what? You can do so much better than that. They did not hear you in the lobby. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Everyone needs a Savior. Every single person that has ever lived outside of Jesus Christ needs a Savior. There is no more desperate need in the world this morning than the need for spiritual salvation. We can talk about war. We can talk about poverty. We can talk about the fight against terror. We can talk about rogue nations. We can talk about disease and oil and alternate energy sources and the economy and a million other things. But not one bit of that matters in contrast to the need to be delivered from sins and eternally secure as God's. Because when the world ends, and it will, oil and economies and poverties and kings who think that they're all that will all be gone. They'll all be wiped away. And all that will be left is eternal life. Now this is at the center of the message to the shepherds. And remember, the shepherds represent all of mankind. So in verse 11, the message is, to you, for you, is born a Savior. Not just someone who might be a Savior. Not someone who could become a Savior. Not someone who will become a Savior. Jesus was already the Savior when he was born. He didn't grow into the job. He didn't become, as they say, a leader. Leaders are not born, they're made. Or maybe it's the other way around. I've lost track, personally. Jesus doesn't become a savior. He is the savior. When we saw that video, and he's laying as a baby in Mary's arms, he's already the savior. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, someone who's already the savior. He's already here to do that. And Acts 4.12 says there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. John 14 says it's only through Jesus. He's the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. The gospel is legitimate because Jesus is the Son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Only he can do that. You and I can't do it. I can't be Lord over my sins. I can't be cleansed by good intentions or good works or hoping God will just somehow overlook it all. We need a Savior. The word means someone who can perfectly and completely free us from all sin and perpetually 
keep us saved. That's the good news of great joy. God provided a Savior, and he is Jesus Christ the Lord. Somebody say amen. The angel says to them, he says to Joseph in Matthew 1, call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. There is importance in the name of Jesus Christ. Don't ever misuse it. I was at the hockey rink last week, and I heard this little kid. He didn't know what he was doing. And he just kept saying, Jesus. It struck me, because you rarely hear the name of Jesus in society, do you? And he kept saying, well, because the kid had a birthday on Christmas. He said, well, you're Jesus' brother, and Jesus is your birthday, and you have Jesus. I mean, he probably said it 15 times. I was reading at the time. I just thought, boy, that's odd. Don't ever misuse the name of Jesus. It's the name of salvation. And then he says, he's the Christ. That's an important word. It's a Hebrew word. It means Messiah or anointed one. He fulfills that name because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the ruler of the universe. He's the only one that can legitimately say, I am the Christ. Look at the third part. He's a savior who is Christ the Lord. The one with unlimited, unquestioned, unchallenged power and authority over everything. God says to the shepherds, this is no ordinary baby. This is the Savior. But Jesus didn't just come to live. His purpose is far greater than that. He came to die. He came to defeat death forever. We sang it earlier in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never experienced that. You don't know what it is to be saved. You don't know what it's like to be delivered from sin. And you've assumed, and I don't mean this critically, I mean this honestly, you've assumed that the way you live would be enough justification to exonerate you before God but as the days go on and you move closer and closer to death, you realize that that's not going to be sufficient. There's no way you're going to be able to save yourself. And when you stand before God to give account, you're not going to be able to say, I defeated sin on my own. I overcame it on my own. I, I beat it in every possible way. And listen, you're not any different from me. I'm as sinful as you are. None of us is free from it. We're all permanently stained by sin. That's why Christ came. That's why God went to the effort of sending his son to save us so that we can be delivered from the bondage of sin. And that's pictured in the last two signs. We're going to look at them just for a second. Look at the fourth sign in verse 12. Jesus is wrapped in strips of cloth. <coughs> that fact highlights that Mary was scrambling. She was young and inexperienced. She had never had a baby before. And if they were really, as I believe now after a few weeks of really intensive study, if they were really rejected by their family and they were kind of shunned and viewed as an outcast, she probably hadn't had a baby shower. Nobody had given her a nice, cozy, warm blanket when she first gave birth to tuck that baby in. Nobody, even as they left for Bethlehem, knowing she was fully pregnant, she was to term, thinking, you know, maybe while you're down there, you might give birth. 
Nobody apparently tucked the blanket in and said, here, Mary, I know it's been rough, and I know we've been critical, but, but you're having a baby. You need a blanket. Have you ever thought about that? She's unprepared, and Mary's no slouch. She's a spiritually sensitive woman, but nobody helped her. So she gives birth. And the time is so unexpected and the place is so unlikely that she has to grab what she can. I pictured maybe she, maybe she tore some of her own cloak or, or maybe she said to Joseph, or maybe Joseph, being a, a wonderful, godly man, just said, here, honey, hold on, hold on. Maybe just tore his coat and said, here, we've got to wrap that baby in something. We, we have nothing. It's makeshift, but it's not coincidental. Hear that this morning. This is a makeshift solution that has all kinds of spiritual implications. It's a stark picture that looks ahead to what will await this child. 33 years after this moment, he'll be taken captive. And he'll be bruised and pierced for our sins. And he'll be crucified on the cross. And then he'll die. And somebody will take his body and what will they do? They'll wrap him in strips of cloth. Similar to what Mary does on that Bethlehem night as she holds that tiny baby and they find some cloth and they wrap him and swaddle him is the word of the King James. They, you know how you do with a baby. You want to keep them snug and secure. She wraps him up. This was an advanced symbol of what Christ had come to do. He had come to die. He had come to take our sins on himself and to crucify them so we could live. For sin to be forgiven and exonerated, there has to be a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they would take a spotless lamb and they would cut its throat and they would pour the blood out on the altar and they would offer that as a sacrifice. But that was only sufficient for a time. Jesus says, I'm the lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. And they cut him and they bruise him, and they put him on a cross, and his blood pours out, and he dies for our sin. He dies for us. Absolutely amazing to realize that the Son of God, the Creator and Lord of all that is, comes in humility as a baby and allows himself to be wrapped in strips of cloth to betray the purpose for his coming. But that wasn't all. Look at the last sign. He's placed in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Anyone who would come to see a king and a savior would expect to be told, we know he's just a baby, but he's dressed in the royal robes. And he's laid in the cushiest bassinet. And he's got attendants day and night. And he will be treated as well as any baby has ever been treated. That was the wise men's expectation because who do they come to? They come to Herod and say, where's the king of the Jews? We, we expect him to be in the palace. Is he here? Herod says, I don't know what you're talking about. What, what is this? There's a king that's been born. Where, where is he? Is he not here? We expected him to be in the palace. The shepherds find him. Look at the text one more time. Shepherds find him just hours old, wrapped in strips of cloth, lying in a manger, 
manger in a stable outside and in, cared for by humble nobodies, undistinguished in every way, except that this is the Savior. This is Christ the Lord. And one more time, there is no coincidence to this. Instead of the coziness and warmth of a crib surrounded by all the amenities that you want to give a newborn, Jesus is laid in a feeding trough for animals, carved out of stone, cold and austere and uncomfortable because that was a picture of his future. Julie and I have stood in the tomb in Jerusalem that I believe is authentic and legitimate possibility of being the place where Jesus was laid after his crucifixion. I think there are two reasons for that. One is its proximity to Golgotha, the place of the skull where he was crucified. We have a picture of Golgotha this morning. And if you look at it, you can really see from the picture. Could you go one back for me? There you go. Some of you have stood there. Some of you have been to Israel. I wish we could take an Israel trip at some point. Maybe the Lord will allow it. But this is the place where Jesus was crucified, the place of the skull. There's a little uh, dip down below where you can see the face of that, where the theory is they would put the crosses so they'd be at street level as people walk by. This is a very busy place right outside where the old wall of Jerusalem was. It would have to be outside the wall because they could not crucify criminals inside the walls of Jerusalem. The only place that looks like this, and trust me, when you walk up to this place, you immediately see it. You can see it, right? You can see the skull. When you walk up, you go, wow, mm, that's got to be it. That's got to be the place where Jesus was crucified. Just down the path from that is the garden tomb. And the garden tomb is in a very nice area. It's a stone, it's a tomb that's cut out of a rock, as you can see. It's in a very nice garden that would have been indicative of someone who had wealth, which Joseph of Arimathea did. And the tomb that is there there's a second reason why I believe this is the authentic place. Could you go to the next slide? Thank you, guys. If you look at this, there are two areas that are cut out in the tomb for where the bodies of the owners would be laid. The one on the left was the man's side, and you can see in the back left of the picture that there was an extra cutout that after the fact, they carved more out of the rock, apparently to accommodate a body that was not planned to be there. Theory again being that if Jesus was laid in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, it would have had to be adapted because he was apparently not the same size as Joseph. Now that's theory. We don't know it for fact. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus would have been laid in a tomb similar to this, hewn out of rock, carved out of stone, which is a picture all the way back to Luke chapter 2 with this we're done, that Jesus was taken and he was wrapped in cloth and he was put in a place carved out of stone. Pointing ahead to that. Pointing ahead to the day when his body would be taken off the cross and wrapped and put in a tomb. He was born, listen now, that man no more would die. Here's the conclusion that is good news of great joy. Jesus wasn't put to death just to die. 
Anybody can die. We're all going to die. Unless the Lord comes back in the next 40 years, I'll die. It's appointed to men once to die, and after that, the judgment. Jesus didn't just come to die. He was put to death and put in the tomb so he could be resurrected. And as he lives, we live. Because he lives today, because he is victorious over sin and death, we now can become victorious over sin and death through him. Romans 6 says, Our old self was crucified with him so that our body of sin might be done away with, so we'd no longer be slaves to sin, for he who died is freed from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him, for the death... He died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, believer, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's why he came. That's what the symbols are about. That's what the signs point to. He came to die so that he could be resurrected, so we could be lived. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, and that salvation is for anyone, anyone, anyone. Somebody in this room this morning might not have ever believed that. You might not have ever received that. I don't know each of you personally. I don't know that. <coughs> but I will tell you that that baby came. Jesus was born so that you could be released and cleansed and purified forever through him. Would you close your eyes just for a moment, be very still, and let me just talk to you for a second. You've listened so well, and I pray you'll indulge me for just a minute more. But I want to I get very personal. Where is your heart this morning? Where do you stand with the Lord? Maybe you're here today, and you've never heard the gospel. You've never heard it. I, it it's possible that you've never heard it. But this morning it became clear to you. The Lord spoke to you despite my efforts. And you understand now, I need a Savior. I need to be freed from the sin that has controlled me for so long. And every option, every grass I've grazed on hasn't gotten it. I've never been satisfied. <coughs> I pray this morning, right where you sit, you will say to the Lord, Lord, I understand. I need to be forgiven and exonerated from my sin, and I can't do it myself. Lord, I understand that Christ is the Savior, that he is the only one that can deliver me. Father, forgive me of my sins. Make Jesus my Savior and my Lord this morning. I don't know if there's anybody in this room that's praying that. Maybe you're just thinking about it, but I want to encourage you, don't. Don't think too long. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of decision. You don't know what happens tomorrow. And I pray that if you're praying that or you're even thinking about that, you'll come talk to me. You'll come talk to Randy. We'd love to sit down and, and explain the gospel to you, explain what it means to be saved. Because you don't want to keep walking day after day without knowing this Savior. Think of the effort that God went through to save you to deliver you from sin. I pray 
that you will accept that good news of great joy, that you'll know what it means to be saved. Now, believer, you and I, <coughs> have been saved a long time. Some of us are new in the faith. Either way, my question today would be, are hearts full of joy? Joy that just can't be stopped because we know that baby. We know that Savior. We've been delivered. We understand what it is to be free from sin. Some of us are still, still holding on to sin. Some of us are still clinging to it like, like a security blanket. It's never going to help you. Romans 6 says we're freed from sin. We're delivered from it. Don't walk in it anymore. Live as someone who is alive in Christ, not dead to sin. Maybe that's the challenge for you today. Maybe that's what you need to hear. I don't know. I, I'm just praying the Lord will lead us at this point. But maybe that's what you've needed. Maybe it's a wake-up call this morning, December 19, 2010. Maybe you need that wake-up call to get free from sin. Unto you is born a Savior. He's delivered you. Walk in that salvation. Walk in that new life. Tell others what you've seen and what you know. Father, we praise you for your grace. Lord, it is just unbelievable and remarkable and amazing that you love us and that you save us. We don't understand it. We can't comprehend it, but we know it's true. And Lord, I pray if there's someone here that's teetering on the edge of salvation this morning, Lord, that you would convince them and convict them that now is the time, now is the day to turn their life over to you once and for all. We, Father, we thank you that we can do that because of Christ. And Lord, for those of us that know you and love you, just increase our love. May our hearts be warmed like the shepherds were when they heard the news. May we draw closer to you every day, rejoicing, telling others the good news. We thank you and praise you. And Lord, we love you so much. We pray this in Jesus' name.